us. So this is Genesis chapter uh, 37, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Uh, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the, flock, uh, pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, uh, we were uh, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, uh, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers uh, said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? Uh, So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, uh, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves uh, to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel uh, said to Joseph, Israel is Jacob, by the way, uh, are, you, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me words. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, uh, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So uh, Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of uh, their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben Reuben, uh, said to them, Shed no blood. Uh, throw, uh, Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand, uh, out of their hand, to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on uh, their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then, uh, then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. 
and Reuben, returning to the pit, uh, returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify where, uh, where it is your son's robe. Uh, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, be our teacher as we uh, study this uh, profound story, this mysterious story that happened in history, in this world of your invisible hand, and would you take uh, the, the truths of this scripture and apply them to each of our lives that we might know how to rest in, uh, in your fatherly care. And um, so instruct our hearts now. Send your spirit to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, it is um, providential. I, that uh, we're looking at this story of Joseph. Uh, if you were here last week, over the last month, we, have, uh, we were looking at a, a sermon series called Soul Care, about how do we be uh, counselors to each other? How do we be a church that kind of listens to each other, cares for each other's souls, encourages one another, speaks hope and the gospel to each other? And uh, if you were here last week, there was uh, one of the sub-points of the sermon uh, started a number of conversations for me uh, this last week, and the, and the sub-point was that all of our suffering that we experience in our life has been appointed by God. That God appoints the suffering into our life. And uh, actually, um, after church, uh, my, Shannon, my wife's family, was here, and uh, I, I got home after church, and we were all going to have lunch, and I was waiting for them to say, we want to talk about your sermon, and, uh, and which we had a good three-hour conversation, and then her sister was texting me on Wednesday with uh, theological and philosophical questions and texting me scriptures, and so uh, a lot of questions came up, and uh, because, you know, the, the obvious question for all of us is, God appoints suffering? into our life? If God is good, how does he do that? Why would he do that? And how can I ever believe that? Of course, this is, uh, you, know, uh, well, you know, one of the big questions of theology. And it's, so it's amazing that, you know, we've, I planned this sermon series three years ago. <laughs> and here we are, the week after that, and I, we are looking at the classic Bible passage about God's providence. And what providence uh, is, is um, that God has, before he created the world, he has foreordained whatsoever will come to pass. He knows the whole history, he knows the whole future, and every detail, and he orders all things according to his purposes. And so providence is God's mysterious work of his invisible hand of how he directs all of history, all of our lives, to fulfill his purposes in the world. And... Um, and what's so powerful about the Bible is that this is obviously a deep mystery. 
And instead of the Bible giving us a you know, a philosophical treatise, you know, something that Descartes maybe would write. <laughs> uh, the Bible gives us a narrative. It gives us a story. It gives us events that happened that teach us um, uh, something about how all this works to instruct our hearts so that we might trust God. And the story uh, gives is the story of Joseph, which we're going to be looking at in detail over the next four months. And if you don't know the story of Joseph, uh, the story of Joseph begins here, where uh, Joseph's got problems with his brothers. He's, he's, he's actually uh, he's one of the younger brothers, and uh, his brothers are jealous about him. And the father, uh, his father Jacob, uh, loves him more than all the others, and so the brothers are so angry, they come up with a scheme where they sell him into slavery. And he's sent into slavery into Egypt. And he goes and he works for this guy Potiphar. He's a captain of the guard. And then he's wrongly accused of a crime. And he's put into prison. And he meets a cupbearer there. And the cupbearer, he, he uh, tells a dream for the cupbearer. And the cupbearer forgets about him. But then later he remembers him and tells the king, I know this guy who's in the prison who, uh, who interprets dreams. And then Joseph comes up and interprets the, the Pharaoh's dreams. And then he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And then he um, devises a whole relief effort where he rescues basically the whole ancient Near East from this devastating famine, and he rescues his own family. It's this incredible story where he suffers greatly, and yet God uses him powerfully. And at the very end of Genesis, when you come to Genesis 50, the the last chapter, there's uh, this scene where the brothers who've sent, sold them into slavery in this story, say, "Uh uh-oh, now he's the He's second in command, and we sent him into slavery. He's going to kill it. He's going to have us killed. And there's a famous line in Genesis 50 that many of you know, Genesis 50:20, where Joseph responds to them and says, "Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." And it becomes the interpretive verse of the whole book of Genesis. Actually, in some ways, it's the interpretive verse of all of human history, that what we intended for good, God will eventually, or what we intended for evil, God will make and serve for good. And this statement in the end of Genesis that talks about this story we're reading is is probably uh, the most definitive statement in the whole Bible that defines for us what providence is, God's invisible hand directing things for his purposes. And so uh, this morning as we look at this story, and and I'm going to kind of base it around that verse in Genesis 50, we're going to look at three questions about providence, about the doctrine of providence. And the first question is, first, what is man responsible for? What is man responsible for? Because if God's controlling everything and everything's God's purposes, then how are we responsible for any of the decisions and questions that we make? Are we even responsible? What does the Bible say about that? So first of all, what is man responsible for? Second, what is God in control of? How comprehensive, how exhaustive is God's control of his world and human history and the things that happen in our lives? How much control does he have? And then, uh, lastly, we'll look at where do these two things come together? Man's responsibility and God's control. Where do they come together? And, um, you know, this is, of course, one of the great theological puzzles of all history. And so you shall be glad that little old Pastor Nate up in Bellingham is going to co- crack the code for you. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm going to do, do the best I can and, uh, and, and, and pray that the Spirit uses this and this is helpful and that this is for your comfort so that you could trust in God, and, um, and also, you know, I had some great conversations this last week about this topic, and I hope 
that it begins conversations among you. So this, this conversation doesn't end with my sermon. So talk to each other. Uh, struggle through these things uh, together in, in your home groups and after church as you're talking and having coffee. So three questions. The first is this. What is man responsible for? If God, if this is God's world, this is my father's world, what is man responsible for? And, um, you know, if we say that God is sovereign over everything, does that mean that we're all a bunch of robots, that basically we're programmed, that we don't, we don't have a say in anything, and we just kind of do what we're programmed to do, and we're um, bound together. And um, the Bible never describes our life in God's world in, in anything like that, like that we're robots. Um, actually, the Bible describes, says that sin is God giving us over to our passions. And that what our life here is, now, we don't get to just do whatever we want. I mean, just some things, like, I don't get to just go buy a giant yacht if I want to. I, I'm limited. I don't have money for that, so I can't go buy a giant bot. You know, I can't dunk. So as much as I'd like to dunk, I'm limited by uh, my body and, and the, the, the place that God's put me and where I live. And, um, and so there's all kinds of limitations already on things that I can do. But also, I'm limited to only do the things that I want to. We act according to our passions. And God, in the sense, the kind of freedom that we have in the world is we're free to do what we want. Now, our wants and our passions and our desires are, um, are often evil that we'll see in this passage. But that's the kind of freedom that the Bible describes that we have. And, um, and because we have this kind of freedom to do what we want, to follow our passions, the Bible says that we are responsible to God, accountable to God for all of our actions. We are responsible to him. And this is really important. Now, I want to say a couple things about our, the, about our responsibility to God. The first is this, that we are responsible to God for our families. We are, res, um, we are responsible for our families. And, um, you know, if you've been with us the past few years studying Genesis, you'll know that uh, Genesis is the story about God beginning to bring his grace to the nations of the world. And the way he does it is he chooses this family. It's Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshiper in Mesopotamia, and God says, all right, I want you to leave your father's house, I want you to go, I'm going to plant you in the promised land in Canaan. And, um, and so Genesis is much about this family, about Abraham and his son uh, Isaac and his son Jacob, and now Jacob's sons uh, that we're reading about in this passage. And throughout this story, what we've seen is that this family... Uh, the first Christian family, God's chosen patriarchs, are absolutely a mess. They go through the Ten Commandments, and they're breaking all of them, right? I mean, they want to murder each other. They're lying to each other. They're stealing from each other. They're envious of each other. Um, go through all of these things. There's adultery happening. There's all kinds of things. And these, this uh, family is... Um, and, and what the story of Genesis is about is God actually chooses a family full of evil, full of all the sins that we all have in our families, in our lives, and yet God's purposes are still going to work through them despite all of those evils, despite all those sins. That's what the whole story of Genesis is about, again and again and again. And, uh, you know, you see it in this passage. Look at this opening paragraph, right? It says, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So it's basically, this is the story about Jacob's family. And uh, it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, you know, that should, already you're like, well, well, he's got at least two wives. Actually, there's two more. Actually, it's kind of more like two wives and two girlfriends. These are kind of the girlfriends. And uh, Jacob uh, has uh, 13 children, 12 sons, and a, um, 12 sons and a daughter. 
from four different women. And by the way, if you've ever wondered, you know, the Bible talks about polygamy and the Bible's so regressive because it thinks, thinks polygamy is okay. No, it doesn't. Every, every case of polygamy uh, in, in the Bible is a, not a happy family, not a happy home. And this is not a happy home, all right? And, uh, and so, uh, so first of all, you're like, man, all right, already problems going on in this uh, family system here. And, um, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. So Joseph's the youngest. He's kind of self-righteous. He loves tattling on the older brothers. My brother did this and there. And he knows how to push their buttons. And uh, so Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And so we have this favoritism, a, a, a blatant favoritism. You know, he makes this colorful robe and puts it on. It's like, just in case anyone's not clear who the favorite is, it's the guy who's got the <laughs> fluorescent robe, and everyone knows I like him, okay? So rubbing it in, and, you know, that's, that's painful. And it's just grinding it, and it's growing this envy inside of them. And then Joseph even puts it pushes it even even more where he has these dreams where he says, yeah, I had this dream and I'm the king and all you are bound down to me. And the brothers are thinking, I hate this kid. What is his problem? And so what we have just in this little paragraph, okay, we have um, uh, marriage problems, uh, sexual sins, we have favoritism, self-righteousness, envy, and then we have an envy that eventually grows into murderous thoughts and ultimately selling their brother into slavery. I mean, it's just absolutely a wreck. And it's all happening in the context of a family. And the, the thing for us to realize, the reason why I say that, um, first of all, we are responsible to God for our families and the things that happen in our families is because it's in the family that the things that we are most ashamed of, the things that are most painful to us will generally happen in our family context. God cares tremendously about that setting and the events that are happening there. And, um, you know, uh, just, just this last week, I was, I was actually I was with Daniel and, and Randy. We were at Elizabeth Station talking about this sermon series we just had about soul care and about our home groups and about um, how we be counselors to, to one another in, in this church. One of the things they were talking about is how something that's very common in our families is that there's this unwritten law that you don't say anything bad about the family. And there could be devastatingly horrible things happening in the family, but you never talk bad about the family. You never name any of the sins that happen in that family. And um, in one sense, this is true. The Bible does say that we should honor our parents. And actually, the Bible says the way that you love a parent is by honoring them. That is how you show love. And I, you know, that's true for children. That's true for us as adults. But an honor that ignores great sins is a false honor. And what's amazing about this story, we're looking at a story where jo Joseph's growing up, there's this favoritism, that the, and, and he's got these brothers who are envious of him that are wronging him. And really, and it's, you know, he's kind of a punk kid, but you know, he didn't deserve to get sold into slavery. And, and yet, as you get to the end of the story, it's quite amazing. He becomes the king of Egypt, and his family is there before him. It's kind of the day of reckoning. It's kind of, all right, we're going to... The truth is coming out. What are we going to say about this whole mess of the family? And what we see that's amazing about Joseph's response is he doesn't just say, hey, God worked it all for good. He says two things. 
He says, you meant it for evil. Pause. Let's let that soak in. He's naming the events of his family as evil. Pause. Now we'll move on to the next statement. But God meant it for good. There has to be um, a, a naming of evil. We will be responsible for the things that happen in our families. It needs to be named first. And, um, and you know, I, I think that this is important. Um, as we're talking about soul care this last week, this last month, sorry, and about as we open our hearts and our souls to one another, open our lives and our stories to each other, hear about each other's lives. And one of the things that I've kind of said over and over is we don't want to be trite in the way we use the scriptures. And this is one of the ways that we do that, is we need both sides of Joseph's statement. As we talk about our families, things that are painful, things that are shameful, and maybe we've been wronged in really serious ways, the first thing is to name that it was evil and that it was wrong. And this isn't to be bitter at, at our families or at our, at our parents. And um, this isn't to, to be uh, uh, vindictive and try to get revenge and make them pay for things that happened in my family. No, Joseph doesn't do that. Actually, Joseph said things were evil, and yet he was in the midst of forgiving them. He was weeping over them. He says, I love you. God was saving us. And so there's a tremendous tenderness there, and yet he's stating the truth of what was there. And so this, the reason why I say this is all so important in a sermon on providence and God's control over everything is that doesn't mean that we just say everything is good. Not everything is good. And, um, and you know, I, I want to say that, you know, if you're a parent and this idea of sins in our families being named, I mean, this, I, I know there's a million different family stories present, you know, in, uh, not a million, but 200, <laughs> family stories present in this room. I don't know what your story is, but um, I, I know that maybe as a parent, the thought of your kids naming evils that have happened in your home it may be frightening. I, I, actually, I know that's frightening to me. I have that thought of my kids being 25 and saying, all right, time to, time to face all the short... Let's, let's name all your shortcomings as a parent. Uh, frightens me. And let me just say, if that's true, if, you, if that frightens you as a parent, then that means that the first thing to do is don't let them be the one to name it. You be the one to name it before they have to. We say it. And in this story, we're going to find out that there's great hope in that. There's great reconciliation. There's great, there's great hope that we can name it. It's because of Christ, who's washed our sin, that we can name it. And, um, but part of the reason why I think this is important is because many of us grew up in families, uh, because what you, the family that you grow up in tells you what is normal. And so you think, I thought that was normal. And guess what? Things that happen in our families may not be normal. And even here in, the, uh, uh, in uh, Genesis, you know, let me say this. If, you, if, if you've ever, uh, you, you know, when you first become a Christian or you first encounter the Bible, you say, you know, I'm going to read through that Bible. That, that looks interesting. I'm going to start at Genesis. You start reading through it. And you're, what you're expecting is that you're going to see um, all these families, you know, all these inspiring stories about moral heroes who do great things and they trust God and they love God and they love other people and you say, this is going to be great. And then you get into Genesis and you're seeing, uh, you know, adultery and, uh, and murder and, um, and all kinds of crazy things and lying and, and multiple wives and all this stuff and you're like, what is this? This is not inspiring. I'll tell you what it is. It's God being honest. Being honest about this family and saying it and saying this is not normal. This is not what God intended for a family. This is not God's will. 
And uh, this is the second thing about uh, what are we responsible for. First of all, we are responsible for our families. But second, we are also responsible to God's law. And I know this sounds strange. You know, a lot of times we don't, Christians don't want to talk about God's law. But the reason why God's law is important is because it tells us what God's will is. It tells us, it shows us God's character. What is God for and what is God against? And so we look at this passage, and, you know, verse 18, it says, um, The brothers, they saw him from afar, and, be- and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So these brothers are making a plan to, uh, uh, the brothers are making a plan to kill their brother. Is this God's will? Well, the sixth commandment says you shall not murder. So, no, it's not God's will. It's absolutely not God's will. And they say, oh, well, they changed their plan. They actually didn't kill him. They sold him into slavery, right? Uh, Verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Oh, well, maybe that was God's will, for him to be sold by his brothers into slavery. Well, Exodus 21 tells us that kidnapping is a capital crime, and you should be put to death for doing it. God is absolutely against this. And so the first when we come to a story like this and we talk about providence and we look at this family and we ask, is this God's will? The answer, the first answer is absolutely not. No, God hates this. God is against it. He's not for it. He is angry by it. And one of the things we see in this passage is God is not mentioned in the whole chapter. I think his name doesn't appear, which should say to us, this is a godless, these are godless events. God is not in favor and not of support of any of these decisions that are, that, are, that are happening here. And that's the first statement that Joseph says in the end of the book. You meant this for evil. This was your scheming. And even though God is going to work all things for good, we must first say that this is evil and it is wrong and God is not for it. And uh, actually, uh, uh, Bethany Robbins, uh, Daniel's wife, sent me a really helpful article, uh, blog post this last week on God's anger. And this is, uh, this is, uh, um, uh, what's the name? Um, I just lost, I didn't write it in here. Um, Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Tripp. Paul David Tripp, is that his? Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, and this is what he says. Anger is one of God's most beautiful characteristics. For God's children, his anger is a place of bright hope because he's righteously angry with sin every day. We can rest assured that everything sin has broken will be restored. Everything sin has twisted will be straightened. Everything that's gone wrong will be made right again. God's anger assures us that all things will be made new. We have to know that God is opposed to this, that that he's angry against it. Before we can move to say that God is working all things for his purposes, okay? So, the first thing, what is man, what are we man responsible for? We are responsible for the events that happen in our families. We're responsible to God's law. And God's law shows us his will. But, uh, what's amazing about this story is that even, even though God's name doesn't show up, there's hints that he is, his invisible hand is indeed present. And look at, even in verse 20, when the brothers are coming up with this plan, they're going to sell Joseph into slavery. Look at what he says. Look at what they say. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. That's true. They're going to see what's, his dreams that he's going to rise up to be... Uh, 
their ruler and they're going to bow down to him, they're going to see that God is going to work. And they, even in their words, they don't know what they're saying, but they're saying God is going to do something. Something is going to become of those dreams. And so um, uh, God's name not being mentioned in this chapter, on the one hand, says that the events are godless. But it also tells us that God's workings are, are through his invisible hand. His invisible hand is at work, and his purposes we can't see, but they are still there. And so this leads to the second question, not just what, what is man responsible for, but second, what is God in control of? What is God in control of, right? So if, if man's responsible, he does what he wants, how is God in control of this world? And um, most Christians will say something along the lines of that God permits bad things to happen. He allows things to happen. But one of the things that we'll find if you, in the scriptures, and I think in this passage, is that God actually does more than that. It's, it's more than him allowing. He actually is ordering and directing everything that happens according to his purposes. So as we ask that, answer that question, what is God in control of? First of all, I want to say, he is in control of the details. God is in control of the details. And um, if you turn to, in your bulletin to page three, I put uh, two paragraphs that I'm going to want to read in this sermon. We're going to read the first one here. This is, this is a thick theology, but uh, it's, it's really powerful, concise, from the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is, is our doctrinal standard as a church. This is kind of foundation that, that theologically our church is built on. And this is what, um, uh, I think it's chapter five there, on Providence. Westminster Confession says says this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So all of these characteristics of God are working together so that he's actually ordering and orchestrating even the details of our life. And um, this story has many small details in it that all had to work together perfectly. You know, he had, had, to, be, he had to be sold to the Ishmaelites. They needed to be walking by, and it had to be the Ishmaelites who were going to go to Potiphar and sell him to this one guy who happens to be connected to the king. And he had to have, and we'll find out later, that Potiphar's wife was this seductive wife who um, gets Joseph in trouble, and Joseph has to go into this prison. It has to be the king's prison. He has to be there with the cupbearer and the, and the baker. And they have to have a dream. Everything all these details have to work in perfect order in order for God's purposes to happen. And uh, one example of this we see in this passage. Look at verse 14 again. So Jacob uh, said uh, to Joseph, Go now and see if, uh, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So, uh, Joseph, uh, or, so jo Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came uh, to Shechem. That's where the brothers were doing their flock. Uh, uh, pasturing their flock, and a man found him wandering in the fields. So here's, uh, here's Joseph. Joseph walked uh, about 50 miles to Shechem. Um, and uh, imagine walking by yourself for 50, 50 miles, and then you come to this place where there's just all these fields, and you're just like, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Hope I run into them. <laughs> I'm by myself. And, and he's just wandering around from field to field. He's like, I don't even know. And they're not even there. He's in the wrong spot. 
and he's just killing time, wasting time, wandering aimlessly. But it turns out that time needed to be killed because uh, when he went to Dothan, he needed to be there just at the right time when the Ishmaelites happened to be coming by. If he'd gone there earlier, they wouldn't have been coming by. And the brothers would have said, let's just kill him. And they wouldn't have come up with this other idea to sell him instead of kill him. And so um, these details were essential. And I know that many of us, many of you have stories where you say, I've seen that happen in my life. You know, I I think of, I spent uh, three years in graduate school studying mathematics. Uh, And uh, three years, that's a lot of time in my 20s. And I don't don't even remember any of it. I haven't used it. I thought I was going to be a math professor. And you say, wow, I studied all kinds of epsilon balls and, uh, you know, convergence theories and all this stuff and real analysis. And you say, what a waste. Well, I think God just had to kill some time with me. I wasn't ready to be a pastor. I needed to have some kids, <laughs> be a father. I needed to learn some things. There were a couple churches I was in that were going to teach me really formative things that I needed to learn that were going to shape my, my ministry for my whole life. It wasn't wasted time. It wasn't a wasted detail. And what the Bible says um, is is that every detail, every detail of our life, uh, if you are a child of God, there is no wasted detail in your whole life. It's all been carefully ordered according to his purposes if you're his child. An amazing reality that the Bible says that. Every detail. And, um, and now, obviously, this is difficult, and I want to read to you the second paragraph from the Westminster Confession, okay? I know this is big. Stay with me here, all right? I know we're getting into the, the depths of the mysteries of the universe here, okay? All right? The second paragraph, because the thing that makes... On the one hand, we, that's a hopeful thought, right? That God is orchestrating even the details of my life, but, look, but read this. The almighty power unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves. So his, his power is so, exo- you know, so comprehensive, so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall. That means God ordered the details of the first fall when sin came into the world. And all other sins of angels and men his providence covers even, um, even the, the sinful um, details that happen in the world. Um, and not by a bare permission, but such as has joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Every detail is in, his, in control. But it goes on to say this. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So God is not evil. He does not create sin. We're we're evil. And yet, even the evil and sinful things that happen are under his providence. And that's the second thing. So what is God in control? First of all, he's in control of the details that happen in our life. But second, and this is... This is the heavy one. He is in control of the violence that happens in our world. He's in control of the violence. And um, let me say this carefully, but this is what we see in this story here. Um, uh, God has a plan to send Joseph to Egypt 
And yet his plan, the way that he is going to get him there, is for him to experience an unimaginable, fearful act of abuse from the hands of his brothers. Look at verse 23. So, jo- so when Joseph came to his brothers, okay, Joseph's now traveled 64 miles by himself. Imagine he's been wandering around aimlessly. Imagine how excited he's like, finally my brother, someone I know, someone who knows my name. You know, the vulnerability and the openness and how excited he is for relationship and intimacy and to see them. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down to eat. So Joseph is alone. He's vulnerable. He's afraid. And what we actually find out uh, later in the, in the book when the brothers recount this is that Joseph was in the pit and he was screaming out to them. Please, pleading with them, please don't do this. Brothers, I'm your brother. Think of what Jacob, our father, will say. Please, I beg you. And it says that they were eating. They were sitting there having a meal, totally callous to his screams and to his cries. And they left him in there and then sold him to complete strangers who they knew would do violence to him. And uh, the question is, whose idea was this? Whose idea was it? for this to happen. And what Joseph, at the end of the story, tells us is, first of all, it was the brother's idea. You, and you meant this for evil. This was your scheming. This was your planning. And yet God meant it for good. It was also God's idea because God had a purpose. And um, how can that be true? How can both of those things be true? It's a big question, and um, I don't have all the answers, but let me, let me tell you how I've been helped a little bit. And I've shared this with you before. John Frame is a, is a theologian who wrote a book called The Doctrine of God. It's been really helpful to me. And he goes through unpacking, because he really pushes that God is in control of the details, and yet we're responsible. And is there any analogy for us to understand how these two things work together? And he says that most all analogies break down, but one analogy that is helpful is the analogy of an author and a story. And that when we think of an author writing a story, and he creates these characters, and he even has these evil characters in the story, a good author, even though they're in total control of everything that happens in the story, says that certain characters just had to do things. They maintain the integrity of the character, you know, the nature and the desires of their characters. This character just had to do it. But you say, the character didn't have to do it. You wrote the story. But the character just had to do it. And it's this relationship, and I think that's exactly how it is with God. God is the author of this story. And what that also tells us is when we understand that we're characters in a story that God is writing is that it puts everything that happens to us in the context of a broader story. See, in the moment, it was an act of evil. And the brothers only saw it as that moment. And so in the moment, it was evil, but the story as a whole was good. The moment was evil, but the story as a whole was good, and the story included that episode. And so what we have here, that means for us as Christians, I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but it's, I think it's really important, is that we have both of these truths. Is this God's will? No. It's against his law and he's angry and uh, this, this is a completely godless event. Is this God's will? God uh, 
orchestrates and orders every detail of human history. And yes, it is as well. And that's exactly what Joseph is saying in his statement. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And it's important that we hold both of those with full thrust. We don't lessen one of them. Because, you know, in, in, in a lot of churches, they say, God didn't have anything to do with that. He, was, he's, he would never be involved in anything like that. And they say, no, he's just angry. He's just against it. He's just, um, he, uh, he's only good. And then in other, you know, our tradition, we're a reformed church. In that tradition, we begin to say, nope, God is in control of everything, everything that happens, and we don't talk about how angry God is. And what we have to do is hold both of these together in full strength. And let me just say, this is, this is I know this is a profound theological statement, but as we talk about counseling each other, many people in this room who've experienced a great harm, we need both of these truths as we minister to each other. Because um, for Joseph, his process of healing, where he could come to a point where he could come to his family and weep with them and forgive them and say, I love you and I'm going to save you, I'm going to rescue, for him to have that warmth and softness, he had a two-stage process. He had to first name it as evil. And as people come to us and they bear the things that have happened to them and they share those things that that are wrong and they're shameful, we say that this is wrong, God is against it. And we need to feel that first and pause and internalize that. But then he also moved on to say, my whole story is written by God, and the whole story is good, and is for his ends and his purposes. And it is because he believed in God's sovereignty and God's power and God's control in everything that enabled him to be soft and forgiving to his brothers. It it let him not come back with vengeance and anger, but it, it softened him. And so he needed both of those truths. We need both those truths as well. So... One last question. How do we trust a God like that? How do I trust a God? How do we trust a God that had Joseph, who he loves, in a pit screaming for his life while his brothers callously left him there? And that was, that was not just the brother's ideas, but God's idea also. How do I trust him? And this is the last question we're going to ask. Is not just, is man responsible? Yes, man responsible for all his actions. And uh, is God in, what is God in control of? God is in control of every detail, including the violence in this world. But lastly, how do these two ideas come together? How do they come together? And um, the key that opens that question, that riddle, is the same key that opens every riddle in existence in the world. And the key is the man Jesus. The key is the man, Jesus. And because Christians throughout history, as they've read this story about Joseph uh, you know, being uh, betrayed by his brothers and sent to Egypt, uh, Christians have always said, this is so much like Jesus. It's like, a four, it's like a prophecy that was being lived out, acted out, prophecy. And, um, and it was a picture of Jesus. And you even see that when you read verse 18, when it says, and they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And any Christian who, Christians who hears those words, they conspired against him to kill him, will immediately think of Jesus and how it was envy that the religious leaders wanted to murder him because of envy. And of course, even some of the details here that his robe was taken, Jesus' robe was taken. He was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. You know, later he becomes a wrongly condemned and thrown into prison. Jesus is wrongly com- condemned. You know, Joseph is this innocent uh, sufferer. And yet, God raises him up to become the king of the world, just like 
God has raised Jesus to be seated at his right hand, and he's um, drawing all people to himself, and he's the king of the world. And then, and then even Joseph, what does he do? He draws all the nations to himself and feeds them bread, which God is doing today. He has, Jesus has people in every nation who are worshiping and eating bread, and he's feeding them bread, his own life. And then he forgives all of his brothers, and he, says, uh, he, he, and he forgives all of their debt and reconciles with them. We have this picture of the brothers reject the one who would deliver them. And because of their rejection, uh, because they rejected him, they are delivered. And that's exactly what we did with Jesus. We rejected him, and because we rejected him, he became our deliverer when he died on the cross. And so what we see is that these two things come together in Christ. And uh, the disciples in Acts 2 said this statement, Peter said this in his sermon in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of, of God. All of Jesus' suffering was appointed and direct. It was the great injustice, the great crime of history that the innocent man was crucified was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, Jesus' death was both the hands of lawless men and the hand of God and the plan of God. They come together in him. And so how can we believe, how can we trust in a God who appoints suffering into our life, who writes suffering into our story? We trust him because he wrote it into his own story. And he took that suffering as well. He appointed it for himself. He's a part of the story. He's the author that walked into the book and became the one who had the greatest suffering so that we might trust with him, trust in him and have life in him. So we hold these mysteries together, but when we hold them together, there'll be life and comfort to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, what mysteries. We acknowledge how small our minds are. We can't comprehend your ways but we can know your goodness. And I pray for everyone uh, sitting here through this sermon as I know uh, many events in their own families and lives have come to their minds as they've heard these words. I pray that your spirit would draw each of their hearts and their souls to you, um, that they would rest, that you are the judge, that uh, you are angry, with injustice and abuse and violence. And yet they would also rest in your sovereign uh, care and your sovereign plan that you work all things for good. Teach us these truths that we too might be like Joseph, that we might be forgiving and gentle and weeping even with those who have wounded us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior, who suffered for us in Christ's name.